Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to the Dynamic Duel Podcast, a weekly show where we review superhero films and debate the superiority between Marvel and DC by comparing their characters in stat-based battle simulations. I'm Johnny DC. And I'm his twin brother, Marvelous Joe. And in this episode, we will be reviewing the 2005 film Fantastic Four. And like you, we're not crazy about the idea. (laughs) No, there's a lot of times on this podcast where we're like, man, I'm really stoked for this episode. This is not one of those episodes, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it could be just as fun to talk about what went wrong with a movie, though, as it is to praise a film for what went right. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. We're, of course, doing this episode now and tie into our last episode where we pit the DC villain Killer Frost against the Fantastic Four's Human Torch. Yeah, and it's all in lead up to our 200th episode, which is coming up in a few months where we pit the JSA against the Fantastic Four. So we're going to have a lot of JSA and Fantastic Four related duels and reviews coming up in the next few months. So get psyched for that now. We'll be reviewing the Fantastic Four later on in the episode, but before that, we're going to break down the superhero movie news from the past week, of which there's finally some Marvel content. Yeah, just a little bit. We're going to be talking about how Michael Keaton might be in the Flashpoint movie. We're going to be talking about the animated Superman Man of Tomorrow trailer, and we will be talking about how Hellstrom, an upcoming Marvel show on Hulu, has a new logo and premiere date. As always, our segment times are in our episode description, so feel free to jump around to whatever part of the episode you want to listen to. If you guys can, if you're not subscribed to our show already, please subscribe. And if you are, please share us or rate the show on whatever platform you're listening to us on. It goes a long way in helping Jonathan and I promote this podcast. Anyone who's done that, just know that you're our favorite people. We appreciate you. If you haven't done it yet, guess what? You're not our favorite people. We don't appreciate you. (laughs) You know how to fix that. But but with that out of the way, (laughs) quick to the no prize. A no prize is an award Marvel used to give out up until the 90s to fans. Our version, the Dynamic Duel No Prize, is a digital award that we post on social media Jonathan personally draws for those who we feel gave the best answer to our question of the week. Last week's question came off the news that DC would be hosting their own Comic-Con sort of virtual event called the DC Fandome. We asked, will you be tuning into the DC Fandom event, and what are you looking forward to the most? We have a winner to announce for the no prize, but first let's run down the honorable mentions. Our first honorable mention goes to Michael Haggerty, who said that yes, he'll be attending the Fandom, and he's hoping that we get to see a teaser of the upcoming The Batman movie, directed by Matt Reeves. Yeah, I'm not sure if we're going to get a teaser for that this early, but uh, I'll take anything. Honorable mention goes to Brandon Estergaard, who said that, yes, he'll be tuning into the event, and he's looking forward to what they reveal about Michael Keaton's return and the DC multiverse. And we'll be discussing that later on in the episode. Nightwing Superman gets honorable mention for his answer of, yes, he will be tuning in, and he's looking forward to any announcements about the rebooted DC animated universe. Yeah, I'm really curious to see if the Man of Tomorrow film that's coming out that we just got the trailer for will be the star of a new universe or not. Jacob Friese, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, said that, yes, he'll be attending, and he's looking forward to Warner Brothers' video game announcements. 
which I also am. We won't be talking about it in the news breakdown, but Rocksteady did reserve a few URLs regarding the Suicide Squad. So I'm thinking they might be releasing a Suicide Squad game next, and that's going to be amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah, the URL they reserved is Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. Holy crap. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. That sounds like misdirection, that particular title. We'll see. Honorable mention goes to Inferno Bat 6, who said, yes, he'll be tuning in, and he's looking forward to a trailer for The Batman. I remember the Christopher Nolan teasers were basically just like logos and voiceover. I'll take me some of that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Jeremy Orr gets honorable mention, saying that yes, he will be tuning into the event, and he's excited to find out what Rockstar Games has in store. Did they land any other URLs besides the Suicide Squad one? Yes, they also did uh, Suicide Squad the game and Gotham Knights. So either you're going to get to play as all the characters from the Suicide Squad, or maybe you get to play as all the characters of like the Bat family. Either way, I'm stoked because those Arkham games were amazing. Ken Johnson said he'll be attending and he's looking forward to the Hall of Heroes world and Insiderverse, where we'll be hearing from the heads of DC Comics and DC Films. Kelvin Mims gets honorable mention for saying that, yes, he will be attending and he's looking forward to hearing more info on the Batman. Yeah, like maybe a synopsis or something. That would be cool. Jonathan Hazelton said he would be attending and he's hoping to get Snyder Cut details and an announcement about an air cut of the Suicide Squad film. I'm still kind of torn as to whether or not I want an air cut because it kind of seems like they're moving on from that already with James Gunn helming the next Suicide Squad film. So I already think that if you want a better Suicide Squad film, like it's already coming. We're not necessarily getting a better Justice League. So that's why I'm excited for the Snyder Cut. Well, I mean, what better way to improve the Suicide Squad brand in lead up to the new film by releasing an improved version of the previous film? That's true. Yeah, I could totally see them wanting to do that. Honorable mention goes to Colby Hentges, who said that, yes, he will be attending and that he and his kids will be all over the kids verse, as will I and my daughters. Caleb Albers gets honorable mention saying that he will be attending the DC fandom because it's hard to find ways to lull his kid to sleep. What? (laughs) The heck, Caleb? (laughs) What are you talking about? Uh, Love it. He must be a Marvel fan. Yeah. Who doesn't have their own con to go to this year? (laughs) Damn it. John Spees said that, yes, he will be attending if it's free, which, good news, it will be. I don't think I mentioned that in the last episode. The DC Fandom is a free event. Yep, you just got to go online. JP Lunai said that he will not be attending because of work, but he will be staying on top of the highlights and trailers that come out of the event. Yeah, and we'll be keeping you up to date on those highlights through this podcast's social media channels. So if you're not following us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, be sure to do that. Definitely stay tuned to those accounts on August 22nd. Our final honorable mention, which uh, is it really an honorable mention, goes to Adam Spees, who said that no, he will not be attending because he would rather rewatch The Office for the 73rd time. <laughs> Same, you know, like I could go to the DC fandom event, but also I need to clip my toenails. So I think this answer gets our very first dishonorable mention on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to start making that a thing. <laughs> but the winner of this week's no prize goes to Miggy Madden for his answer of hell yes he will be attending and he's looking forward to the Snyder Cut and Suicide Squad trailers the most and I chose this answer specifically not only because the teaser of the Snyder Cut we got last week was incredible but also I think what I'm looking forward to most from this event is the first Suicide Squad trailer is it confirmed that we're even going to get that though yes Yeah, it's confirmed that we're going to get a Snyder Cut trailer, a Suicide Squad trailer, and a Wonder Woman trailer, I believe. Oh, nice. Dang, that's going to be a busy episode right after. Oh, yeah, for sure. But congrats once again to Miggy Madigan. You win this week's No Prize. If you, the listener, want to win your own No Prize, stay tuned to later on in the episode when we'll ask another question of the week. And now that that's done, on to the news. Okay, so in a bombshell scoop last week, I think it was The Rap who first revealed that Michael Keaton was in talks to return to the role of Batman in the upcoming Flash film, which is supposed to be an adaptation of the Flashpoint storyline from the comics. And this is huge, huge news. Who would have thought that Michael Keaton would have ever returned to the cowl? Yeah, I heard prior to this announcement that they were in talks with Jeffrey Dean Morgan in reprising his Thomas Wayne role from Batman v Superman. 
But then I heard that they were considering Michael Keaton, and I was wondering, okay, so they're going to cast Michael Keaton as Thomas Wayne? And then I heard that, no, this is going to be Bruce Wayne from the Tim Burton films. Which is really interesting. If you're not familiar with the Flashpoint storyline from the comics, the Flash basically wakes up in an alternate timeline where Bruce Wayne as a child was killed and his dad, Thomas Wayne, became Batman. It's a really good story that kind of rebooted DC's continuity. Yeah, that version of Batman was badass. He was a lot more gruff and violent. It was like if Batman had the Punisher's personality and had guns. Yeah, it's a pretty cool take on the character, which is why I was really excited when I saw the same news that you did, that Jeffrey Dean Morgan was in talks to return as Thomas Wayne, because of course he played the character in Batman v Superman. Jeffrey Dean Morgan as the Flashpoint Batman is perfection. Which is why I was super conflicted when it was kind of revealed that that probably won't be happening and Michael Keaton will be returning as his version of Bruce Wayne and Batman. Now don't get me wrong, I love Michael Keaton as Batman. But with news of the Snyder Cut being announced, I kind of thought that Warner Brothers was going to reboot the Snyderverse, as it were. And it looks like here, they're reintroducing the Burtonverse. Which is pretty cool, but I also don't know if it's going to be just a part of the multiverse or if it's that the Bartonverse is the reality that comes about when the Flash saves his mom from being killed. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the film is going to focus on the specific timeline that is the Flashpoint universe. It looks more like they'll be exploring the concept of a DC multiverse, kind of like the guest spot that Ezra Miller had in the Flash television show. Right, right. And it's like, is that continuity now? That would be pretty interesting because the character of Knox, who was in Batman 89, you know, the reporter, he was in the same CW crossover event, Crisis on Infinite Earths, that Ezra Miller was in. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it's all continuity now. That's what DC is establishing here. And I feel like I should be really, really excited by that. But for some reason, I'm not. I, I don't know if it's just because I want one singular continuity or I'm just afraid that this is going to confuse everyone who's like not a fan of comics. Well, the last multiversal movie that came about that springs to mind is Into the Spider-Verse. And that was a fantastic tale. You could end up with a movie along the likes of that. And that's true. Now, I'm not concerned that we're not going to get a good film. I think if they could pull this off, it's just going to be amazing. But I guess I am concerned about what this will do to continuity. Instead of streamlining it, I feel like this is going to open up so many doors. Which again, may be a good thing. Who knows? There is something to be said about an endless multiverse that makes the events of the current film that you're watching seem a little bit trivial. In that you're frequently reminded that no matter what you see here, there is a universe where something else happened. And I guess to that end, if you look at a recent film like Apocalypse War, that's not a bad thing because it allows them to up the stakes as it were. You could destroy an entire universe and still keep your franchise going. But again, they couldn't have made Apocalypse War if they didn't have that long-standing continuity developed. Which is why I'm torn on this whole thing. How do you feel about it? I don't care. Okay, (laughs) I was looking for something insightful, and you're just like, meh, it's DC. Okay. (laughs) Not your problem. I get it. Hashtag, not my problem. (laughs) Marvel's perfectly fine with their single shared universe. Yeah, until they introduce the multiverse of madness. Oh, shit. (laughs) And I kind of wonder if that's why DC is doing this, because they're trying to introduce the multiverse concept before Marvel does. Actually, now I'm really, really looking forward to this because I want to beat Marvel to the punch on this. I want to stick it to them. Be like, haha. Except now that I'm looking it up, actually, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness comes out three months before the Flash film. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) That sucks. (laughs) Yes. It's fine. It's fine. We're just going to do it better. Don't worry about it. This all, of course, is dependent on whether or not Michael Keaton agrees to terms and is officially signed on as Batman. Right, because we already know that he's playing the Vulture in the upcoming Morbius film and likely in a planned Sinister Six film that Sony is developing. And if those talks fall through, rumors are currently that Jeffrey Dean Morgan still may return as Thomas Wayne. But this brings us to our question of the week. Who would you prefer to see in the upcoming Flash movie? Jeffrey Dean Morgan's Thomas Wayne from the Flashpoint timeline or Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne from Tim Burton's Batman films and why? Post your answer to our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or email us at dynamicduelpodcast at gmail.com. We'll pick our favorite answer and draw that person a Dynamic Duel no prize that we'll post to social media. 
In other DC news, the first trailer for the animated film Superman Man of Tomorrow was released last week. And all the concerns we had about the animation being a little bit too much like Archer were alleviated. Yeah, this animation looks amazing. Yeah, I still think it was made with something like Flash because it's so clean. But with the frame rate they chose, it looks like it's still kind of like hand animated. And I really like the clean, modern look of the animation. I think it's really appropriate for a film that's, you know, called Man of Tomorrow. It looks like the story is heavily inspired by a Max Landis Superman series called Superman American Alien, which actually ends with a fight between Superman and Lobo. But in this trailer, that's sort of what kicks things off. This like fireball is heading towards Earth. So we see Superman in his like pre-Superman form. He's wearing like pilot goggles and he goes up to meet the fireball and it turns out it's Lobo. Yeah, that was a surprise for this. There were quite a few guest surprises within this trailer. Lobo being one of them. Martian Manhunter being the other, and Parasite. I had no idea that those guys were going to be in this film. It's quite the alien-centric cast. Which is a good take for a Superman origin film. You know, the sci-fi angle was one that was attempted with Man of Steel, but this film looks a lot more hopeful, tone-wise. Yeah. Is Parasite an alien, though? No, he's not. He's, he's an experiment from Lex Luthor in the American Alien storyline. Now, I don't believe Martian Manhunter was in the American Alien storyline, but he plays pretty heavily in this trailer. It almost appears like he's going to be a mentor figure to Clark Kent. And he's probably why Clark Kent embraces his Kryptonian heritage. That would be interesting. Superman has always been portrayed as like, you know, the first DC superhero. But what if he came along like after some of these other ones? That's actually a concept that they're exploring in the comics right now. Actually, they've established in the new continuity that Wonder Woman was the first superhero. And then Green Lantern and The Flash came out and Superman didn't come out until later. Interesting. But it looks like Lobo knows all about Kryptonians because he refers to him as a Kryptonian, whereas in the American Alien storyline, Superman learns he's Kryptonian from some Green Lanterns. And I thought Lobo had a Green Lantern ring, but I actually think that's a Kryptonite ring. Yeah, that threw me off too. It looks like a Green Lantern ring, but upon closer inspection, it, it's not quite the Green Lantern logo. Now, the Superman American Alien storyline didn't have like a central villain. It was sort of almost like an anthology, sort of like randomly selected years from Superman's early career. So I'm kind of wondering how this film will adapt to that storyline so that it's more cinematic and more in keeping with a three act structure. I wouldn't be surprised, however, if Lex Luthor ultimately was the bad guy. Well, you don't cast a star like Zachary Quinto in the Lex Luthor role and then not use him. Yeah, we get to hear Zachary Quinto as Lex Luthor, you know, ask Superman what the S stands for. And of course, in Man of Steel, it stands for hope, which I think kind of threw some people off. In this film, they go straight for it. Just kind of unashamed, it stands for Superman. The voice cast is pretty intriguing here. Superman sounds a lot more youthful than he has in past films. And his look is a little bit more youthful, too. I like all of their looks, from Lois Lane to Parasite to Martian Manhunter. They all have a really good design to them. I'm actually really excited for this film to come out. It hits digital release on August 23rd and Blu-ray on September 8th. And we'll definitely be reviewing it around that time. And yeah, and we'll have to set up a duel around that time involving either Lobo or Parasite. We'll see. In other news, ahead of the Comic-Con at Home presentation that the San Diego Comic-Con organization is going to be holding, we got our first look at the title treatment for the upcoming Hellstrom television series, which is going to be on Hulu. Now, Hellstrom is based off of a character named Damien Hellstrom, also known as Son of Satan, who is, believe it or not, the Son of Satan. <laughs> He's raised not knowing about his demonic heritage, but he later learns who his father is and vows to fight against him and all of his evil forces. Though apparently in this show, he's not the son of Satan, he's the son of a serial killer. I'm sure it'll turn out that the serial killer is Satan, because that's the whole source of Hellstrom's powers, his dark soul. Now I know he's not the only star of the show, his sister will also be in the series, right? Yeah, in the comics she was known as Satana. I think in the show she's just going to be called Anna. Now this whole news involving the title card and the announcement that the show is going to be presented at Comic-Con at home is really surprising because last we heard, a lot of these Marvel Television projects were scrapped once Kevin Feige became the new head of Marvel Television. Yeah, I thought the show was canceled. Hellstrom is actually still technically a canceled show. It's just going to be the one season. Apparently they filmed enough of it to continue moving forward with it, which is cool, but I also wish that other shows would have survived, such as the rumored Ghost Rider show that was going to start Gabriel Luna's version of the character from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Hellstrom's never been my favorite character. He does have a rather compelling backstory that could be interesting. I don't know. I just don't get into him as much. 
Do you think we'll be reviewing it? Um, I think the precedent that we set ourselves for this show is that we're only reviewing HBO Max and Disney Plus television shows, because otherwise there would just be too much to review. So it's likely that we won't be reviewing this one, but I don't know. It might be a game day decision. Yeah, if COVID keeps pushing theatrical releases, I think that'll probably affect our decision. Yeah, because we'll quickly run out of new content to review. The show is going to make its debut in October as part of Hulu's like Huluween event, which is pretty clever, I think. So we'll report more on it as that date gets closer and they release more news. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But I think that does it for this episode's news. So let's go ahead and get into our main event where we review the 2005 film Fantastic Four. All right, the Fantastic Four movie that came out in 2005 that was directed by Tim Story is the movie that we will be reviewing now. We're not going to be reviewing the 2015 Fantastic movie until later on a few months from now. This will be a spoiler review, so if you haven't watched 2005's Fantastic Four, I'm going to say I don't really care if you watch it or not before listening to this review because, all things considered, it's simply a mediocre movie. And it's obsolete now, so... Right, considering that when this film was made, it was 20th Century Fox who owned the cinematic rights to the characters until a few years ago when they reverted back to Marvel and Disney. And thank God, right? Because no one understands their characters more than Marvel. 20th Century Fox may have been hit or miss with their X-Men films, but they never made a great Fantastic Four film after three attempts. And as a Marvel Comics fan, it's easy to see how all of their films really just failed to grasp and translate the comic book source material. Because one of my first thoughts after watching this film again for the first time in, I I don't know, probably eight or nine years, was that I had forgotten how much of this movie felt like a kid's film. Oh, absolutely. But is that bad for a Fantastic Four film? Because the Fantastic Four is a family, and they are pretty family-friendly. Interesting point. Now, this was only like my third time seeing this film. And as a father, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did because of how family-friendly it was. My daughters hate Marvel with a passion. Yeah, they're indoctrinated. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I have a hard time introducing them to Marvel things because they know dad's a big DC fan and Marvel is the enemy. Quick little story bit on that. Jonathan's daughter, Faith, once thought that the Joker character was Marvel because he was the bad guy. She thought all bad guys were Marvel and all good guys were DC. (laughs) That's how bad it is. That's how Jonathan's raising his daughters. (laughs) And raising them right. I made sure watching this film this time that I didn't tell them it was Marvel before we watched it. So they weren't really the wiser. I think my older daughter, Grace, knew she's nine years old. I think she caught on because right away they'll ask me, oh, is this DC? And I'll just be like, "Mm, oh, look, Human Torch. (laughs) But uh, I think they enjoyed it. Yeah. What did they say about it? Well, I mean, they didn't like give me a review of it. They're only kids. (laughs) (laughs) But I could tell when they don't like a movie because, you know, they'll get up and do something else, you know, go play with Legos or something. But they stayed with me for the whole film and watched it. I think they really liked Invisible Woman. Yeah, I can see that. I think that the movie's visuals and editing were tailor-made for young children and the lighthearted tone. Right. And I think because my daughters enjoyed it, that kind of made me appreciate it a little bit more, as opposed to a lot of the stuff that DC puts out, which is a lot darker and and more mature. Well, maybe they should switch over to the Marvel side. No, I've already told them, if they bring boys to my house when they're older who like Marvel, I'm going to kick them out. (laughs) 
Ugh. That's going to be my first question when some guy's like, can I marry your daughter, sir? I'm going to be like, what do you think of uh, the Avengers? Oh, they're great, sir. Get the hell out of my house. (laughs) I feel like you're just so excited to say get the hell out of my house anyway. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Part of what makes the Fantastic Four special and unique as a team is the family dynamic. On other superhero teams like the Avengers, the X-Men, or the Justice League, the heroes are for the most part colleagues, right? They work together, they're close, but they're not bound to each other by blood or marriage. The Fantastic Four are. Now granted, Ben Grimm isn't bound by either, but he's very much like a brother to Reed, and they're very best friends. You know, they live together, they fight crime together, they raise children together. They are among the closest-knit superheroes out of anything Marvel or DC has to offer. Now, why does that make the Fantastic Four special? Well, for starters, it changes the dynamic in a way that makes their internal conflicts feel more real and emotional. Not everyone can necessarily relate to arguing with their colleagues, but pretty much everyone can relate to getting into it with a family member. And family drama is rough stuff, like no one can hurt you like family can, but also no one can love you like family can. For me, that is the number one theme that a Fantastic Four movie is supposed to hit. And yet not a single one so far has done that. A movie that got close was The Incredibles movie, which was an amazing superhero family drama that ripped off the Fantastic Four in almost every facet. And it sucks. Yeah, you know, I'm still really bitter at The Incredibles for how much they ripped off of other comic storylines. That being said, you know, it was made by Disney. So now that the Fantastic Four rights are back with Disney, it brings me a lot of hope that the Fantastic Four franchise will be done justice in the upcoming years. Yeah, absolutely. I think they'll be able to nail the right tone. And tone has always been kind of 20th Century Fox's sticking point. And Marvel will also face this challenge down the line. And that is, should the Fantastic Four movie be a family-friendly movie? The correct answer is both yes and no, but 20th Century Fox never found that balance. In 2015, they created an adult-oriented sci-fi drama that was no fun. And with this film, they created a kid-oriented fantasy comedy that was fun but lacking in any substance whatsoever. The script had little ambition beyond being a live-action Saturday morning cartoon. You know, the acting was below average. The editing had attention deficit disorder. The villain was an absolute joke. Not even the action was interesting conceptually. There was a lot this movie got wrong. But due to the very visually exciting nature of the Fantastic Four's powers, I will say that there is some fun to be had with this movie. If there's anything redeeming in this film, it's that the visual effects were good enough and the heroes charismatic enough to successfully pull off a film that results in the bare minimum of enjoyment necessary for me not to hate it. How's that for a recommendation? (laughs) Sold. Totally. Not really. (laughs) I should say for the record that I think the proper tone that a Fantastic Four film should have is a balance between the weighty sci-fi cool of the first Iron Man film and the familial light-hearted charm of Ant-Man. Toss in a little bit of Doctor Strange's visual trippiness, and I think you have a perfect Fantastic Four movie. And Marvel will totally pull it off, I believe, one day. I just have to be patient. (laughs) If you guys want to hear my personal pitch on the Fantastic Four film... It's behind a paywall. (laughs) It's behind a paywall. It's on Patreon. But if you join us on Patreon, it's only $2 a month to hear that pitch. I'm pretty proud of it myself. I even cast the film... Um, If that's something that's interesting to you at all, definitely check it out. It's interesting to me. You know, I wish somebody would just put that in front of Kevin Feige. I I, I thought it was a great pitch. I was totally sold on that storyline. Thanks. Anyway, let's get into our character breakdown. We'll start off with Reed Richards, a.k.a. Mr. Fantastic, played by Yoan Griffith. Now, as we stated in our review of Rise of the Silver Surfer, I like Yoan Griffith as an actor. I'm just not convinced he's leading man material, or maybe to be fair, wasn't given the proper material to showcase leading man charisma in this role. Because in this film, Reed's a dork, you know? He's very meek, very submissive, and indecisive. And by the end, he's, you know, a little less so. Reed's arc is one of learning, and not in terms of intelligence in general, because he's already a scientific genius, but specifically in terms of emotional intelligence. As brilliant as Reed is with numbers, he's kind of dumb when it comes to relationships, both romantic and professional, and he learns along the way, with prodding from Sue and Ben, that he should pay more attention to the people in his life and take charge to get what he wants. And that's in keeping with the comics. 
Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, Reed in the comics is very scatterbrained and inattentive, and it's definitely the primary conflict between him and Sue. But for this movie, learning how to relate to other human beings means that his journey in this film is not really about defeating Dr. Doom. Like, the Fantastic Four don't even know about what's going on with Victor until they're attacked by him at the very end of the movie. The villain is treated as more of an afterthought to Reed's primary struggle of getting the girl. Which is a travesty when you're dealing with one of the greatest supervillains Marvel has to offer. And we'll talk more about how much they fucked up Doctor Doom when we get to his character. But yeah, by the end, Reed overcomes some of his meekness and finally proposes. That's the big victory of his growth here. And if you think about it, Reed is already the guy he needs to be to defeat Doctor Doom by the time he gets used to his powers. Because barking out one or two orders in the final battle doesn't require much growth and isn't really a great feat of leadership. Here, Reed just kind of falls into the leader role because he knows how to defeat Doom scientifically. It isn't really until the sequel that we see his leader arc come to full fruition when he stands up to General Hager. Yeah, I kind of feel like Mr. Fantastic's kind of cathartic moment was his conversation with Sue by the river. You know, when he says that he figured Sue wanted more of like a man's man. She was like, I do, but I wanted you to be that man. And from that point on, I kind of feel like you're right. His character kind of leveled up to what he needed to be, and he stayed that way until the end of the film. I do have to say, though, that every time Reed uses his stretchy powers, I'm always just fascinated by it. There's just something visually about his power set, and I can't quite put my finger on it. But like in moments when he like turned into the wheel, rolling toward Doctor Doom, I remember the first time I saw this in the movie theater, I just lost my shit. I'm like, oh my god, he's rolling in a ball! Now, I do have to say it was something special seeing Mr. Fantastic's abilities sort of fully realized in live action, because when you see in the comics and in the cartoons and stuff, it's not real. You know, I think in the movies when they're trying to show how it would really look to see someone like stretch and like be that elastic, it's probably a bit more of a challenge to make it look like he's still a human being, still has structure to him. But this film, I think, was successful in making me feel like he still had like bones under his skin and stuff instead of just like a tube. Yeah, when you see this power depicted in live action, there is something grotesque about it, just a little bit, the disfiguration, but I think that's in part what makes it so fascinating. I think my favorite part with him in his display of power was when he was subduing the thing, and he just kept like wrapping around Ben Grimm's body over and over again. Yeah, the part where he turned into like the giant blanket above Doctor Doom and then wrapped around him, that was cool too. Speaking of cool depiction of superpowers, let's talk about Susan Storm slash Invisible Woman, played by Jessica Alba. Her invisibility visual effects were pretty damn awesome in this movie. Very convincing. Yeah, I'm sure it's a challenge for the visual effects team to depict invisibility because you're not supposed to see it. But I thought they did a really good job showing us what invisibility looks like. Yeah, I think they had the brilliant idea of giving her like this transitional glass form where she's somewhat visible, but completely transparent. And then she would move on to full invisibility. It was pretty cool. Yeah, and her force fields looked like they had that same kind of glass effect to them. The visual effects here for Invisible Woman were so much better than they were in the 2015 film. I just have to say that. We'll bring that up again when we review that film. But I do have to say that Kate Mara can act circles around Jessica Alba. We said Jessica Alba had a problem with her line delivery in the Silver Surfer film, and it's even worse here. She's just so hot, but just so bad at emoting. The way she speaks, the way she moves, her facial expressions, it's extremely awkward to watch at times. I found myself cringing. And her arc isn't too great either. Her arc is primarily based around her relationship with Reed. She realizes that she still has feelings for him and pushes him toward being the attentive, take-charge man she wants him to be. It's not much of an arc at all. Maybe for character development, it would have been nice if she actually loved Victor or perhaps wasn't fully aware of what a shitbag he was, but it was pretty clear from the beginning that she didn't want to marry him, and at the end, she said he always thought he was a god. Her arc was a little interesting to me because I didn't understand why she wanted to change Reed so much. Like, that didn't seem like the good basis for a relationship. It's like, I like you, but I just want you to change. Yeah, I mean, that's valid. It's hard to get people to change for a relationship. And if you do, there's typically some kind of resentment there. It almost seems like it would have been a more mature arc if she would have accepted him for who he was. Or maybe realized that maybe he wasn't exactly what she wanted or needed. I think she saw something within Reed that he didn't necessarily see in himself at the time. She saw potential in him to be the guy that she wanted him to be likely. Yeah, that's probably true. But again, like Reed, 
her main arc had nothing to do with the main villain. The central conflict of this movie appeared to be this love triangle with Victor Von Doom. Let's talk about Victor Von Doom, aka Dr. Doom, played by Julian McMahon. First off, fuck everything about this movie's version of Dr. Doom. <laughs> like, how do you go from the most epic, mystical, mastermind monarch in the comics to this petty, jealous shareholder guy? It's a crime, a crime how Dr. Doom was characterized here. I can't overstate my disappointment enough with it. Like, I feel like Marvel should have fucking sued Fox over this characterization. It's that bad. It was really bad. Like, I didn't understand what he wanted and why he wanted it. It was just a really weird characterization. And Julian McMahon, you know, he's not a bad actor. No. And I think he, he did the best with what he had to work with. But that's not redeeming in any way for the character. No, I think, as we said before, McMahon seems like the type of actor who has a hard time suspending disbelief for this type of role. But yeah, the acting was not the worst thing about Doom here. The character's motivations were so stupid. I mean, dude, you're mad because your girl left and then your company stock crashed and so you decide you're just going to kill all of them? Like, what the fuck? That escalated quickly. You could say that he was also pissed at Reed for disfiguring him, but at the end, he's talking about how fate turned him into a god, so he clearly didn't mind after all. Yeah, that came out of nowhere. Yeah, and his schemes weren't clever. Like, oh, let's shoot a heat-seeking missile at the Human Torch. He wasn't established as a threat to the protagonists early enough in the movie. His voice sounded stupid, he looked stupid without his hood, and he didn't wear it up enough. Just, just fuck everything about this Dr. Doom. It's all terrible. He sucks. Fuck Dr. Doom. I never understood no, like, no, no. how he- No, no, no. No, no. Fuck Dr. Doom. Oh my gosh. I never understood fuck how he- Doctor- I understand. Fuck Dr. Doom. Doom. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> One reason to fuck Dr. Doom- is because I never understood how he was involved in the film's sort of central conflict. Which, you know, you mentioned Reed's arc was, will he get together with Sue? But I think it also involved, you know, will he cure the others? But Dr. Doom had nothing to do with that. They weren't interested in curing him because they didn't know until late in the film that he was even affected by the cosmic storm. And it's like if they would have learned that he was having problems earlier on in the script he could have factored more into the central conflict. It seemed like he didn't want his abilities because of how they were disfiguring his face and stuff like that. And, you know, he killed the doctor because his doctor wanted to report him to the CDC and stuff like that. So you think like he was like afraid for his life and he was looking for the cure and would be excited that Reed found a cure. But nope. By the end, he's just like, oh, I've always wanted power. I'm going to kill you guys. It just came out of nowhere. You thought his beef was with the shareholders, but no, all along, it was just he wanted to kill the Fantastic Four just so he was the only one with power. Is that why he wanted to kill him? Well, that, that's what I understood from the very end from his monologuing. It wasn't because he was jealous of the relationship, because then he really would have only wanted to kill Mr. Fantastic and Sue. But no, he wanted to kill all of them. It wasn't entirely clear. And that's why I say, fuck Dr. Doom. <laughs> He's the worst thing about this movie. In the comics, he's awesome. Let's talk about some of the more pleasant stuff by moving on to Benjamin Grimm, a.k.a. The Thing, played by Michael Chiklis. Now, as much as The Thing looks like a bodybuilding burn victim in this film, <laughs> Michael Chiklis is just nearly perfect for this role. The bodysuit was much improved for the sequel, but here it was adequate, and I like the rock-grinding sound effects they applied when he moved to make it seem like he was more than just a guy in a rubber suit. I thought they did a fantastic job with the makeup for him. Yeah, in the sequel, it was a little bit more comic-like with the more pronounced brow and everything like that. And the color, right. I think, was more orange than it was here. But this is this is perfectly fine for what it was. Chiklis had a great Thing voice. And not only did he nail the comedy in his bickering with Johnny, in this film, he also really nailed the tragedy of his situation. The look on his face and in his eyes when he tried to pick up Debbie's engagement ring and when he told Susan how he'd give anything to be invisible, it was like, ugh, my heart. The scriptwriters actually did get it right in those moments when he can't catch a break, like at the bar when he shatters his glass right after breaking his stool. It's hard to watch, you know? Yeah. And it's also really too bad that the writers fucked it all up at the very end when he suddenly tells Reed he's good as is, even though Reed actually developed a working machine that's proven to change him back. It was such an uncharacteristic moment that they treated as such a throwaway line. Ugh. 
They should have had like the machine that he developed be destroyed at the very end. Like Doom maybe like doesn't want a cure for his power or something like that. Maybe Doom wants to destroy the machine so that they don't have a way to change him back specifically. I feel like yeah. that was a missed opportunity. Absolutely. Overall, though, I do think Ben Grimm was one of the better parts of the film. But the best part by far was Johnny Storm, a.k.a. the Human Torch, played by Chris Evans. He is the heart of this movie. Yeah, and he was a good foil for the thing. You know, their goals were sort of diametrically opposed in this film. They were the antagonists for each other. Johnny wanted to keep the powers. The thing wanted to cure. And yet they were on the same team. And in the end, they learned to work together. Sort of. Yeah, they still bicker. I mean, but that's kind of what's great about their relationship. They're like the squabbling brothers. The fact that Chris Evans can play the sincere, noble Steve Rogers and the immature and selfish Johnny Storm to perfection in both cases just shows his impressive range as an actor. His comedic timing in this film is pretty flawless, like when he plays the prank on Ben with the mirror, or when he asks the nurse to join his little snow jacuzzi. He's very endearing and likable. He's the only comic book character to have not one, but two extreme sports moments within a superhero (laughs) film, which, uh, you know, is for better or for worse. Unfortunately, over the course of two films, Johnny had very little growth as a character. In this film, the climax of his conflict came when he argued with Sue about his immaturity, but we never really see him learn a lesson about it. There was a deleted scene in this movie where he's at a bar where he thinks all the people love him and he shows off accidentally almost hurting some people and they all turn on him. That would have actually been great for character development. Oh, absolutely. I didn't know that was a deleted scene. Why did they delete that? That feels like integral to the character. I mean, they deleted it for pacing, which is most of the times good. But in cases like this, where the movie is just so fast paced that it never really has time to breathe, I think that would have been an important moment of reflection. Because Sue was telling him, like, you think they love you? You think this is love? Yeah. Wow. And nothing comes of it. They totally dropped the ball there. Which is a shame when you have such a character based story like this based on such multifaceted characters from the comics. There weren't really any other major characters in this movie other than Alicia Masters, played by Carrie Washington, but her role was even smaller than I remember in this film. She had like that one scene at the bar, and then she was at the party at the very end of the movie. I guess you could say that Alicia Masters helped influence Ben's decision to get back into the transformation chamber, turn back into the thing so that he could save Reed and Sue. But how did she even convince him to do that? Because she said being different isn't all that bad. I think it probably would have been beneficial if they kind of repeated that line or he repeated that line before going into the chamber. Yeah, possibly. Let's get into the story highlights. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the movie starts off with Reed and Ben pitching Victor Von Doom on the proposal to study an approaching cosmic radiation storm on Doom's space station, believing that their findings can help benefit mankind. And I actually thought this was a pretty good setup for the film. Yeah, if it wasn't for Jessica Alba's acting, this would have been a brilliant setup. That's harsh. I still don't think she did that bad of a job. (laughs) She did, though, man. (laughs) Jessica, if you're listening to this, I don't think you did that bad of a job. I don't think you did bad at all. You're the greatest. (laughs) Call me. (laughs) Doom agrees to their mission and sets Ben and Reed up with his director of genetic research, Susan Storm, and her brother, Johnny, who will pilot the mission. They all fly out into space where Reed realizes the cosmic storm is arriving within minutes, interrupting Doom's proposal to Sue. Victor shields himself from the storm, while the other four are bombarded with cosmic rays. And I liked the visual effects here, how you could kind of get hints of what their abilities are going to end up being based on how they're impacted by the cosmic rays. Right, like when Sue gets hit, she disappears. When Johnny gets hit, he, you know, like, is set on fire. And when Reed is hit, he, like, distorts his body. Yeah, and of course, Ben gets it the worst because he's actually out exposed to the storm itself outside of the station. Which is good rationale for why he was affected so much by it and and remains in his rock form as compared to the others who can turn it on and off. Right. I love the precedence they set that this is not the first cosmic wave to hit Earth and that the first one set into gear the evolutionary process on Earth. So it kind of made sense as to why this new cosmic wave would transform their bodies. 
Yeah, fundamentally altered their DNA. Which they find out in quarantine in Doom's lab, which we arrive to with absolutely no transition from the space station. We learn that the accident is causing Doom's stock to fall in his company, and all five of them start developing powers. Johnny discovers his while going snowboarding with the nurse. It makes you wonder where their quarantine was, like the quarantine hospital. Like, was it in Colorado? No, it was somewhere near New York, which is weird because Johnny was like, the hottest slopes this side of the Alps are just outside that window or something. And I'm like, what the the hell hell are you talking about? There's no like great snowboarding like that in New York. You'd have to go to like Vermont or something like that. This side of the Alps. Whatever. I take offense to that as a Coloradan. Right. Me too. (laughs) I did like Chris Evans' reaction when Maria Menounos' nurse character told him that he was on fire. He was like, thanks, you're not bad yourself. And she's like, no, you're on fire. And like the way he looks down, I thought that was a pretty comedic moment. I thought it was even more comedic when they were kind of hinting to like his buildup of heat. When she was like, oh, you're hot. And he was like, thanks, are you? It was the same kind of joke. Yeah, yeah. Now, as cool and extreme Johnny's discovery of his powers were, Reed and Sue's was comparatively lame. They discovered theirs over dinner by knocking over a wine bottle. So they find out they have powers. And with Johnny wearing nothing but a pink snow coat, because who knows why, They go looking for Ben, who has transformed into a rocky creature and breaks out of the facility to see his fiancée, Debbie. Ben scares the shit out of Debbie as she goes to meet him on the streets of New York in a skimpy negligee because who knows why, and he mopes on the Brooklyn (laughs) Bridge, depressed. He saves a guy from getting hit by a semi-truck, and Reed, Sue, and Johnny go to help him with Sue stripping naked in the process because we all know why. (laughs) That strip scene was so unnecessary. Because Reed was like, we can't get past the crowd, but you can't, Sue. And then, right when she gets naked and moves through the crowd, you see Reed and Johnny getting through the crowd off to the side. I did love Johnny's reaction, though, where he's like, I'm going to need therapy. I thought that was funny. (laughs) The team rescues civilians and firefighters from the commotion on the bridge, and the media dubs them the Fantastic Four. Reed promises Ben that he'll cure his form while Victor loses his company and discovers that his skin is turning metal and that he can generate electricity. The group goes to the Baxter building where Reed's labs are and begins studying their powers. Johnny gets restless and goes to a motocross event where he reveals the team's uniforms and superhero codenames. This results in dissension among the group that's made worse by Doom's manipulations. I actually really liked that scene when Johnny gave them their codenames. You know, it was a nice callback to like Invisible Girl... And calling Ben the thing, that was just hilarious. That's sad funny. at the same time. It's, you know, it's always hard in superhero movies to show how characters get their names or why they would have code names. The Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of sidesteps that a lot. But here, I, I thought it was pretty clever how they did it. Reed finishes a machine that will cure everyone of their powers, but he lacks enough energy to power his mini cosmic storm that catalyzes the change. Doom learns this and cures Ben of his powers, attacks Reed with lightning, then freezes him, and shoots a heat-seeking rocket at Johnny. Now, with Doom re-exposing himself to the cloud, did that evolve him, like, even more? That's a great question. You think that it would, but I don't believe it did. Because his powers were already at the level that he was able to, like, punch holes in dudes' chests with a lightning bolt. It does seem that maybe they could have gone for, like, an organic face mask approach right there, but I'm glad that they chose to make it a mask. Yeah, just so they could get some kind of reference to Latveria in there. Doom attacks Sue as she attempts to rescue Reed, but Ben uses the machine to turn back into the Thing and save Sue and Reed. A fight between Doom and Thing spills out into the streets, where the Fantastic Four meet up and attack Doom in a coordinated effort to flash-freeze him through application of heat and cold. The banter between Victor and Reed about, like, you know, chemistry 101, physics 101, what happens to rubber when it's superheated? I was like, what?! That line is almost as bad as, like, what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning. You know? (laughs) It's it's true. It's like, what happens to rubber when it's superheated? You know, it melts, just like fucking everything else when it's superheated. (laughs) You know? And then he's like, what happens when you freeze rubber? It fucking freezes. As dumb as the final battle was, I do think they found clever ways for each character to use their abilities and contribute in some way. So I appreciated that. It was really cool seeing Johnny go supernova and then have Sue try to contain it with her force field. Special effects were just amazing. Yeah, it was pretty cool having Sue and Johnny team up and then Mr. Fantastic and the Thing kind of finished it up with the Thing breaking off the top of a fire hydrant and then redirecting that water onto Dr. Doom. Lame in the sense that you defeated the final villain by spraying him with water, but also, you know, a cool application of power. Science, I guess. 
Their plan works, and the Fantastic Four throw a celebration on a boat where Reed proposes to Sue. Now, you mentioned the editing was horrible in this film. I thought one of the most egregious errors was when he kneeled, but then in the next shot, he was, you know, still at eye level with Sue. And it was something I noticed from the very first viewing, but then, of course, you realize in a few shots later that he was just stretching. I thought that was kind of clever. I love how Johnny does the big fiery four in the sky for the very last shot of the film. Right before the closing credits, we see that Doom's frozen body is being shipped to Latveria in kind of a tease of what's to come. And as we mentioned in the Rise of the Silver Surfer review, I thought Doom was a lot cooler in that movie and a lot more truer to the comics. So I appreciated that they sent him back to the home country. I kind of like how they introduced that scene because, you know, Johnny writes the big four in fire in the sky and then it says the end. And then like your screen starts glitching and it's like, oh, Doom's still around. Yeah, the glitch effect is pretty cool. Nowadays, that would have been a post credit scene. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, that's the whole movie. Um, honestly, you know, th- there's a lot wrong with this film. For everything positive that can be said about it, you can counteract with something negative. And when you have a film that's that divisive, so back and forth, you're going to have a lot of people who praise the film and a lot of people who bash the film. Again, I think I appreciated it a little bit more than you, but just a little bit. Now, most of our listeners that are on Instagram gave the film around three stars. And I'd have to agree that it was in the area. I think overall, I'd probably give this film two and a half stars out of five. I think a few of our Instagram followers are just a little bit too swipey with their swipe finger, dragging the star icon all the way to the right of the meter, because there's no way that this film is a perfect five-star film. So when you don't account for those strange five-star ratings, I think you have a film that most audiences would give about two and a half stars, which I think is about right. So I agree with you. Again, the film was just fun enough, just visually spectacular enough for me to not actually hate it. And that's honestly the best thing that I could say about it. I don't hate it. I don't love it. I tolerate it. So two and a half stars is our official rating for this podcast. Let us know what you guys thought about the film by reaching out to us via email at dynamicdollpodcast at gmail.com or by reaching out to us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can find links to all of our social media accounts on our website at dynamicduel.com, where you'll also find a link to our merchandise store, which is on TeePublic. And there you can find a variety of face masks and t-shirts and cell phone cases, all with our no-price artwork on it. And this week, I will be drawing Mr. Fantastic. So if you've ever wanted a Mr. Fantastic face mask, you know where to find one. There you go. That, of course, is in lead up to our next episode, which is a duel between Plastic Man and Mr. Fantastic. Oh, my God. I'm so looking forward to that matchup. It's going to be so weird, but so much fun. I'm really curious to see how you'll incorporate Mr. Fantastic's intellect into our speculation. So look forward to that next week. In the meantime, please don't forget to share, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on. And we want to give a big thank you to our executive producers, Jace Crump and John Spees. That does it for this episode, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Up, up, and away. True believers.